From Mill U Media Group, this is The H, a podcast about the people and places that make Houston, Houston. I'm your host, Luke Bronner, and this is Season 1, Episode 8, Brush Fires and Bomb Shelters, with Josh Moore. In early April of 1997, when I was 17 years old, growing up in the suburbs of Fort Worth, I stumbled across a self-titled release by a Houston-based folk band called Cademan's Call. To this day, I have no idea what made me listen to that album, as I had been a fan exclusively of hip-hop and R&B my entire life. But, for some reason, I listened to it and fell completely in love with it. It didn't sound like anything I'd ever heard before. Clean acoustic guitars, three-part harmonies, a screaming Hammond B3 organ, and layers upon layers of hand percussion. It was such a warm, rich sound, and it had this unbelievable depth lyrically. I was hooked. I made sure to attend every Cademan's Call show within a 50-mile radius of Fort Worth. I knew every word of every song. I was a member of their fan club, The Guild. I had bootlegged recordings and copies of -of hard-to-find, out-of-print albums, and I knew the entire band by name. Cliff, Danielle, Derek, Eric, Randy, Garrett, and Todd. I loved this band. A couple years into my fandom, after the release of their massively successful sophomore album, 40 Acres, there were some fairly surprising lineup changes. Eric Nitzberg, their bass player, left and was replaced by Jeff Miller. And Randy Holzapple, the B3 player responsible for so much of Cademan's signature sound, was replaced by, well, a child. Or, more precisely, a child prodigy. 16-year-old Josh Moore. My name is Josh Moore. I am a creative a musician, songwriter, a producer. I do video, graphic design, and most recently, art installation. I'm working on that now. Now, if you met Josh on the street, he would never describe himself as prodigious. In fact, if he's listening, he's probably shaking his head in disagreement. But trust me on this. This person is not wired like the rest of us. He's not simply proficient in his various creative endeavors. He's exceptional. That's not to say he doesn't have to work at it. He does. He works really hard, in fact. I think that the expectation on creatives these days is to be much more broadly skilled than it used to be. There definitely seems to be more opportunities for people who can think in a macro sense about content, as opposed to just constantly trying to prove that you are the guy at one particular niche thing. I mean, maybe that is working for some people, but I accidentally kind of ended up doing that because I get bored very easily and I enjoy the challenges of of new areas of creative discipline and kind of every few months I try to pick up a new creative software I take a bunch of time and learn a new piece of software that's probably the only thing I actively do that keeps that happening but it has so far seem to benefit me to some degree. So he works hard, but it's not just hard work that makes him excel at what he does. Josh is undeniably uniquely gifted. And for the particular set of gifts he has, he was born into exactly the right circumstances. I'd say the greatest single identifying or defining factor about the way I grew up was a what at the time was one of the, if not the only one, but now kind of a fairly common occurrence, but the Texas-sized megachurch. My dad is a minister of music, a conductor and a composer, kind of an all, another sort of all-around creative. My mother worked in church administration. She had a background in education, also a great singer. Anyway, they, they kind of gave their lives to the church, and I grew up very much in and of that world, and it was all I kind of really knew. And, and when I was born, the church broke ground on what at the time was definitely the largest church campus in the United States. And I was about three or four when the building was dedicated. And so I don't have much of a memory that doesn't include the campus of Second Baptist. They also had a really great school that I went to from, you know, diapers up into high school. And so I was there all the time. I have much more of a memory in childhood of being there than I do at being at home. But it wasn't it wasn't a bad place to be. I mean, they had a bowling alley until the mid-90s, and I think they finally took it out. But, you know, plenty of things to do, gymnasiums and 
pool tables and, you know, always stuff to do. And for me, a lot of the time spent there, I, I got fascinated in music very early, showed an aptitude with sort of my ear. Uh, my ear was scary when I was a kid. I, I mean, I could hear anything and play it almost instantly. Once I got the mechanics of piano enough to know how to move my fingers, my ear knew where the notes were. I mean, going back to five, I, I could I could imitate songs I heard the first time when I was five. And then there was, attached to my dad's office, a orchestra room filled with great instruments, and I spent countless hours in there, learned to play uh, drums and guitar and bass and I didn't start guitar lessons until I was 10 or 11, maybe, but just by virtue of the fact that those instruments were sitting around, I mean, I, I, if it made noise, I was going to mess with it, and I had plenty of time to do so. So self-taught, but had great teachers as well. I had a great drum teacher for a while, had an amazing piano teacher, um, and my dad's a great teacher. He taught me uh, a lot about music. I mean, he would just constantly be kind of showing me theory tricks and showing me new music in the, in the car and talking about how things were arranged and recorded. And, and so I had a very early exposure to a lot of great stuff. Now, when he says very early, he means very early, like as early as is humanly possible. And that, thanks to his dad, Gary Moore. My dad, right when my mom got pregnant with me, read a book called The Secret Life of the Unborn Child, and in it, they make a huge case for the development of the fetal brain and the impact of sound on it and how sensitive to sound the fetal brain is and how it's kind of the only way that the fetus can get any sense of what the environment outside is like. So dad would pull mom, pregnant mom up to the piano, I think pretty much every day for a, a little bit and play the piano to me. And he wrote, wrote me a lullaby. And the story goes, when I was born, I was just freaking out, just wailing. And he started singing the song in the hospital. And then I just completely shut up and focused right in on his mouth, even though I couldn't see yet. I don't think newborn's eyes work yet. But I could tell where the music was coming from and got totally silent. And then as soon as he was done, he said, I went right back to the... So, you know, and I've done that. I don't think I've done it as much as my dad did, but I've done that to some degree with my sons, and they all show promise with, with their ability to... I mean, my seven-year-old, like, is a harmony master. I mean, we listen to virtually anything, and he can pick out harmonies, and that is unusual for seven. By the time Josh was seven years old, he was already forming his first band, made up mostly of other church staffers' kids. They would have band practices in the orchestra room at Second Baptist. And... He'd already begun performing in front of other people. I remember putting on a concert with these two girls that we were neighbors with that I just played the keyboard and they sang and we had like a concert, it, like just opened the garage and the parents sat out in the driveway. And that still to this day is the coolest I've ever felt. Over the next several years, Josh's gift for music continued to develop. He kept playing in bands, finding opportunities to play live music, and he was always on the lookout for new instruments to learn. By the time I was 14, through the summer, I guess, before I started high school, I had, you know, had a band that played at church youth events and stuff, and we, you know, was in a van playing church camps and stuff like that, and had acquired a small version of a Hammond organ. It's called the M3, and just fell in love with the Hammond organ uh, as an instrument. It was just like... It was super cool, A, because it, it didn't look like this, you know, plastic, rickety keyboard that the wind would blow over. You know, it looked like a man's keyboard, and it had wood, and it was heavy, and, and it had this great, you know, you, you could distort it, you know, by overdriving the tubes. And, and I got way into it that summer. And it didn't go unnoticed. Eventually, he caught the attention of some relatively influential people in his world, namely Cliff Young the lead singer of Cademan's Call, and one of the sons of Ed Young, the pastor at Second Baptist, and Josh's dad's boss. So he just kind of had known 
you know, over the years and seen me play and stuff like that. But the guy, right as they were kind of taking off and getting a huge following, the guy who played Hammond organ for them was the oldest guy in the band, and he needed to get off the road. And so I don't, to this day, I don't know why it occurred to him that I might be a suitable replacement. I mean, at the time I was 15. I wondered the same thing. So I sat down with Cliff, the founder and lead singer of the band, and Randy, the B3 player that Josh replaced, to hear what they remember about that time. I, I mean, I held Josh as a baby, first of all. And I knew he'd play piano a little bit, whatever else here and there, but I didn't know he was, he was leagues above or was, but I remember that he was like in fifth grade, maybe, and at one of the football games at the school, the high school, they were playing like this Green Day song. So the band was playing this, so they had like a bass up there, and I see little Josh sitting in with the marching band playing keys, playing this Green Day song, like basically leading the whole band, because no one else was He's like fourth or fifth grade. And so I remember, and I had not seen Josh, because we were been touring for so, so much. And then like later on, I think he was playing bass. It was the same deal. This is the fifth grader of the high school, man. That's the first time I even cleared in my mind that, oh, he's, he's really talented or whatever. And then he was with a band, I think, like a church kind of band or whatever. I don't remember how it all went down. I just knew that Randy and, and Eric stopped touring. And, and I can't remember. I mean, I think we started talking about it. Because we did it with Josh. We were out laughing about it. Yeah, right. He's 15, that kind of thing. And, like, we knew he could do it. It's a matter of whether or not his, his mom would let him do it, so. I told him, I said, if he could pull it off and stay in school, it'd be the opportunity of a lifetime. You know, that's what he wants to do. This would be great. I admire him for doing it and finishing school because when I was his age, I hated school. I quit school. I was, I'm going to be a musician. Yeah, but Josh Josh got an almost perfect score on his SAT when he was in the seventh grade, so it didn't come quite as hard. Is that true? Yeah. Uh, It didn't come quite as hard uh, to Josh as it that did to you and I. <laughs> he was a prodigy, you know, and to me it was just a natural fit. And you know, our, our band has always been a family, and it's kind of hard for somebody on the outside to to fit in at first because you know we are who we are. And so I thought it was a perfect fit. I, I I think it was more than he thought it was going to be. You know, he I have. So much gratitude to Cliff. I mean, he's, he, along with my parents, have kind of given me my career. But I think his decision to tell me that he was thinking about having me join the band many months before talking to my parents was a huge mistake. <laughs> it was not an easy spring. But he uh, he finally did, and he came and, and told he got me out of uh, English class, I think, to tell me that he was... Just when do you know I'm going to go, about to go talk to your dad? Your life is going to go one way or the other. <laughs> Thanks, man. Really, you know, you could just stop giving me updates until... I know. Anyway, so uh, he did. My dad said, that's not really a great idea, but we're gonna, his mom and I are going to think about it, pray about it, and, and they did. And, you know, they had to work very hard to find out how I... figure out how I would keep getting an education and still they wanted me to graduate from second baptist high school and so i had to do correspondence and credits transfer back in and all this stuff and so they figured all that out and they said hey you're good to go and like a week later i was playing for fifty thousand people with the band at a festival in georgia it was quick and and that summer you know was pretty much like instantly like a road dog at 16 and then did a did a 65 date tour through the fall and it was the absolute pinnacle of the band's success huge huge following great venues was just a really awesome time the band had just made such a profoundly good record and i got to just jump right on the rocket for that so at 16 the summer after his junior year of high school Josh lived on the road with the band. When the fall rolled around, he continued to tour while enjoying one of the strangest senior years of high school I've ever heard of. Four or five members of the band were legally made faculty of what is still registered in the state of Texas as Cademan's Call High School. And Christy Bragg, the band's manager, was the headmaster. Danielle was my history 
and English teacher. Someone else did math, and then Cliff was physical education, which basically gave him the ability to athletically humiliate me at his whim. And also, too, that first year, they were really obsessive about me paying dues. That was a big theme that first year. Like, if I, if something disgusting or, or inconvenient had to be done, well, Josh had to do it. He needs a due. He hasn't gotten a due today. You, you know, he's got to pay. So I think the majority of PE consisted of uh, what he and the guy who opened for us on that tour, that first tour named Bebo Norman, came up with. They called the Skinny Boy Straightaway. And it was basically fetch. They would throw a frisbee as hard as they could, not in the direction that I was standing, and I had to run. And the reason was Skinny Boy straight away. I don't remember why, but they made me take my shirt off when I did this because it, they said it just compounded the hilarity of how what a horrible runner I was. And then I would pick up the frisbee and run it back to them, and would do had to do this. I mean, a fair amount. <laughs> We used, to, we used to see Josh run, and we thought it looked like Kermit the Frog riding a bicycle in that first Muppets movie. You know how funny it looks with the, with the legs? We used to always be, he's just like Kermit riding a bike. But uh, as Josh can play pretty much any instrument, and he has a lot of dexterity in that way, an athlete Josh is not. It's like, you know, you leave during the school year, and you come back the first of the school year, and, and this person is like a monster player or whatever. It was kind of like that. I mean, the guy had woodsheds all the time. He... Yeah, he's always practicing. He plays nineteen hundred instruments. One thing, one one cool Josh story was uh, we were working on our the record, whatever the record is after Forty Acres, and uh, so we're in this huge studio in Nashville. So here's Josh, you know, uh, sixteen. I guess he's probably seventeen then, maybe. But he comes up, and so you have all of these string. I mean, the or, you know, in the or, orchest, orchestral world is way different. I mean, in Nashville, they're a little more. You know, and I'm sure on L.A. and New York, they're a little more familiar with the band thing. But, I mean, they're still union and still, like, you know, we are taking a break. It's in the middle of the song, and we're taking a break, you know. So Josh did all the strings, whatever. So they get in there, and there's this big conductor guy in the big, huge room with the orchestra out there. And then we're in the control room, and uh, so they start playing. And um, Josh was like, hey, Cliff, I think the second violin... Is, as a, is flat and I was like really I can't hear I can't tell he said, yeah I think it's flat go, you think it matters he goes yeah I think it matters go, okay uh, tell him so Josh came to do goes excuse me this is an orchestra uh, the uh, this, I think the second violinist is flat whatever and, and the first violinist stands up because the way that works I guess the first chair has to speak for the group and she was going to say no we're fine that kind of blew him off and then the conductor guy goes, yeah, you need to tune. Like out of the neck deal. So she tuned, he was totally right. So he does this a couple of times, and he worked with him, whatever else. Everyone was just like treating him like crap. Uh, and I mean, Josh would go in there and work with him, and I mean, it was crazy to watch. He all of a sudden has gotten this element. 17-year-old kid, like, but by the end, they were all giving him hugs, and oh, we love this, this is great. They loved him. But I mean, when he first walked in, he had to prove himself, you know, by confronting the second violinist in the Nashville string machine. <laughs> so uh, anyway, yeah. So the thought of some high school kid just a year or two younger than me, skipping his entire senior year to travel the country playing my favorite music with my favorite band in front of thousands of people every night sounded pretty great. So I was surprised by Josh's comment that he'd never felt cooler than he did as a kid performing in his garage. Well, when I was, you know, six or whatever in the garage, I had no doubts about my right to be there <laughs> you know what i mean uh it was my show you know 10 years later there was always kind of in the back of my mind like this isn't how this should go you know i i really haven't had to grind at all i had not at that point i mean except for the summer before where we did like three or four youth camps in a van i'd never done any van touring and i've i to this day have not met a musician a professional musician who's on a bus tour that didn't do years of being in a 15 passenger van first i mean that's literally unheard of so in the back of my mind was always this kind of thing like you know it's a cute marketing thing for the band that they have 16 year old band but i i, I was 
grossly incompetent, I felt like, in a lot of ways that the guys in my band and, and other musicians I would see, you know, I had my little tricks and I could play the B3, but it comes off maybe as false modesty. I, I, I've always struggled with a ton of, of doubt, self-doubt, because I'm such a huge fan and student of superior musicians and just try to keep my focus on on what impresses me about what other people are doing as much as possible. So I felt cool in a sense, but always in the back of my mind was kind of like, this is, this is, this is, it was always very surreal. And I looked like a teenage disaster. I had like the most horrifying dental situation you've ever seen. And, you know, it's like, 90, it's like 98, 99. I think the record label had had me get, like, frosted peroxide tips. Like, however cool I may or may not have felt, I did not look cool. <laughs> um, I think some, I can't remember who it was, somebody called, uh, you know, The Life of a Touring Musician, Freud's Playground. It's a very bizarre place to go through your formative years, especially when there's, you know, adulation and, and shall we say a lot of encouragement <laughs> I think in hindsight that's probably the best time for you to learn how difficult life is and that is not the place to learn it really you know the road can be tough in, in certain ways but not when you're that age not when it's keeping you from sitting in high school it's not tough at all as far as adulation is concerned I remember Cliff, the band's lead singer, teasing Josh on stage at a show one time after he'd been voted the hottest teen in Christian music by some 90s Christian publication. That was something I definitely could have done without. And I can't remember what the magazine was, some Dobson, you know, thing. And not only did Cliff give me a hard time about it from stage, but I was out playing shows when we were supposed to all be putting our senior yearbook pages together. And an enterprising friend of mine named Keely made sure that she wrote my blurb about all of my, you know, scholastic accomplishments and she made sure to include in there that I was voted the hottest teen, teen in Christian music. And so, of course, everyone thought that I had included that myself. So, yeah, I, I, I could have done without that. Within a couple of years, the shine began to wear off with regard to how much Josh enjoyed the touring and performing part of his music career. Not because it wasn't fun, but because something else had long held his attention, and he was starting to get really good at it. Almost as early as everything else, I knew that the, that the act of recording was magic, and I loved it. And, and actually, I remember being eight the first time I found a dual cassette deck, and I recorded a keyboard part to one cassette, and then I just figured out, well, I can put that over here and play that one back on the play deck and record that plus a new track onto another cassette tape and then put that tape and then bounce them back and forth. And, you know, these keyboards would have like little, you know, <laughs> late 80s drum sounds and stuff. So I'd lay down a little finger drum track and some, you know, some strings. And I built these little productions, little sequences on set tapes when I was eight and I remember that feeling like the that was the most magical thing that I had ever done like it just didn't it seemed like I had discovered that our galaxy was only one of hundreds of billions like it was such a, a, a huge moment for me that it it's what impacted me more I think in terms of what I knew I wanted to do with music than even just playing for people and I like the fact that I, if I messed up, I could just do it again. You know, and I actually found one of these cassette tapes a while back, and it's, it's a nightmare because every layer adds tape noise. So you end up with this, like, really, you know, quirky FM synthesis sequence with, with just this on top of it. But still, when I, when I heard it, I was just like, it totally took me back to that feeling. So then fast forward a few years, even before I joined the band, I had a friend through the church was an older guy I think he was like 19 or 20 or so and he was making his first independent album and he asked me to come and play on the on the CD and when we come play piano so I show up at a studio my mom drops me off at the studio I'm just looking around like ah oh, this is so cool it's like a real studio and then I go into the booth and play the piano 
And the guy producing it was a guy named Kemper Crab, who had a relationship with Cademans and, and a lot of mutual friends, but I had never met him. But he's a very intimidating presence. He wears all black. He's got snow-white hair. He looks exactly like what you would imagine a the aged version of a 70s prog rock star was. And he's got an incredible history himself. But Kemper was producing, and he had me play. And uh, he told me kind of what to do, and I'm sitting there thinking, okay, so, so he's... He's clearly the producer. I mean, I knew a little bit about production from what Dad had told me and seeing the producer credit in a very prominent place in the back of CDs when I looked at him. And so after I played, I went in there, and, I'm all, and I just started asking him questions. And by the end of that conversation, I was like, that is for me. That, is, that will be my main thing because it's, it's the glorified version of the dual cassette deck. It's, you know, starting with a blank canvas, and by the end of the day, you have a piece of music that can be... So the other thing that Kemper said right after I finished my take, he said, well, congratulations, now you're immortal. And I kind of giggled, and you know, but I thought about it a little bit, and it just blew my mind like that, that we are at a time where we can express ourselves, and I guess now, as long as the Internet doesn't crash uh, and burn, which I suppose it has to at some point, these things that we do that we make will last a really long time so anyway that that was when i knew that i really wanted to be a producer and after the first or second year of touring i just had to itch so badly and actually before the end of the first year i produced my first record for a band that i was friends with some guys from katie and it was like a you know a little late 90s alt rock kind of thing but i just soaked up every piece of information i could about you know, I didn't want to be a chump that, you know, didn't know what he was doing. But then I got, like a few months later, got to record with Cademans, the first record I, I recorded with them. And there were these great, we went, did it in Nashville at these amazing studios with top shelf producers and engineers and cartage guys bringing me any keyboard I wanted. Like, you know, within an hour and setting it up. I mean, it was just a preposterous amount of exposure to kind of the ultimate way to make records. Ed Cash and Monroe Jones split the track out. And they both had completely different production styles. Their engineers had completely different styles. The studios we were in were, di were different. And so I got to see this really wide range of stuff. And so I came back and finished that record I'd started with the band and really kind of actually kind of knew what I was doing a little bit. And then spent every second I could in, at the studio here in town. It's now an a engineering school it's called MediaTek, but at the time it was called Sunrise Sound. And I even slept underneath the SSL console on a cot some nights and just, just had to be around it all the time. And then the next year, so we went and toured that record. And that tour, I for sure was like, okay, I'm, I'm you know, We've been in the Midwest for three weeks, and it's gray, and there's cornfields, and, you know, the shows are always great and fun, but everything else is kind of tough. And this would have been my senior year. So I was kind of starting to become aware that I was missing some stuff, missing prom. And I had the sense that I was missing time with my family that was very important. Whereas, like, the year before, I'd be like, later, Mama, Dad, peace. You know, it was starting to kind of ache a little bit that I, you know, that there was this time that I wasn't going to get back, that I could tour for the rest of my life if I wanted to, but that certain other things that, that you know, I was missing out on. So that made me feel more and more like I wanted to focus on being a, you know, more of a homebody studio cat. And when I got back from that tour, the band decided that we were going to do a record that fulfilled sort of us a, a weird side clause of our contract where basically we had to put out a non-primary type of record that could fall into different categories. It could be live or whatever. And I think for some reason they determined it could be a, a worship album, which at the time was different than whatever your, you know, regular CCM album was about. So worship was was designated a special project and, and then it became all that that Christian music was for a while but the, the contract stipulated that there was basically no money to do this and so we were going to do it in Houston at Second Baptist which had a, a little studio and a legendary dude there um, named Bob Boyd who engineered it 
And we started writing for it and trying to record it, but no one was really showing up. And it was just things weren't getting done. So I, at this point, was kind of a more, I was more proficient at these different instruments, and I knew how to run Pro Tools. And so I just started making the record. I just, like, I coordinated things. I told people, here's what we should try, do this. And I was, I was producing it, but no one had said, Josh, you're going to produce this, because that's absurd. It was, I was 17 at that point. But I, was, I got it done. I wrote a couple songs for it that are not good, but the record came out and did probably 10 times more sales than anyone had anticipated it would do. Two of my songs and then another song that I co-wrote with Aaron Sensman were number one on Christian radio. And the record came out right after I turned 18, but the fact that I had made it when, when I was 17, the, somebody at the label found out that that made me the youngest producer of a nationally released album in recorded music history. And that kind of started a, a little brush fire for me once I moved to Nashville, right after the record came out. The record was still in the charts when I started at, at Belmont to study music business. And it was very strange, kind of starting at the very bottom of a, of a degree in, in music production. It wasn't even, they didn't even have a music production degree at the time. It was kind of a hodgepodge of engineering and like music management and all this stuff. But I was still trying to be in the band and tour, trying to make records. I had a manager who was getting me work with EMI and, and the other BMG labels and, and go to school <laughs> and try to have a girlfriend. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so it was strange. And the other thing that was weird is at the time, that was right when Napster was happening. And, you know, Cademan's had these massive budgets, budgets that... Beyonce doesn't have now like I mean crazy huge record budgets and you know it was still it was still kind of the end of the gold, what they call the golden age of Nashville and I remember my intellectual properties professor saying the first day of school said okay here's here's your textbook and I'm going to teach it to you but there's this thing that you all know about called Napster and I promise you by this time next year, everything in this book will be wrong. And man, he was right. I mean, almost immediately, studios are shutting down. Artists are getting massacred off of artist rosters. I mean, Sony dropped like 13 artists in one day. It was crazy. Like, Nashville was decimated because all the parent companies, when their numbers were just bottoming out, they, the first thing they were going to do was stick it to the Nashville labels, because they, you know, they made all the decisions in New York and L.A. Nobody care about Nashville. So, but the interesting side effect of that was that in so much as I was able to keep making records, I was a good pick because I was 18 and very cheap, and I would work for virtually nothing. And all of these studios that were palaces. I mean, the tracking room and Ocean Way and uh, what is Ocean, what became Ocean Way. All these are the huge studios that have been thousands of dollars a day to track in. I was making development records for Universal South and, and some of these other labels in these palaces for like three or four hundred dollar day rates in ten million dollar studios where Shania Twain and like Metallica like made records like getting to learn the gear, getting to meet the engineers, all that stuff. And it became very clear I was learning a lot more after school than I was learning in school. But things got kind of strange because I kind of stopped going to class. My grades started to kind of suffer as a result, and I was very terrified of my grades coming up at the end of that second semester. But right before the end of the semester, before I was supposed to go home, I got my first publishing check for the songs I'd written that had been on the radio. And, and it was within a couple hundred dollars of the cost of the first year of school. And I took that as a sign. So I went home and I endorsed the check and basically, you know, I, I said, I, I think I should probably not go to school anymore. And my parents, you know, were like, this is impressive. We, they had saved a lot of money for, for me to go to school. So it, 
it, the fact that I was going to be, you know, delivering news of Fs, this made it much easier. And it showed them that in all likelihood I was going to be able to make a living at this. What they and I did not count on is that I would never and have not to this day had a publishing check that was that big. <laughs> it was the largest one I've ever had, and that's probably for the best. So he reimbursed his parents for that first year of college, dropped out of Belmont, and entered the workforce in Nashville, producing records full-time when he wasn't on the road with Cayman's Call. Then we did a long tour with Jars of Clay, and they had never toured together, and then we did two very successful full runs with them, maybe three runs. So one of the runs had been really long, and it was like the beginning of the summer of 2003. We were coming back, and... Uh, my girlfriend at the time, who was uh, Canadian, <laughs> she was coming to live in Nashville for the summer, and she was going to get an apartment there and do, you know, her studies, you know, some correspondence studies before she went back to school in the fall. So I was super stoked to get home, get back into my productions, see her, and she calls me during the show and leaves me a voicemail says, you really need to call me as soon as you get done with the show. And I call her back and she says, well, don't freak out, but your, your house was on fire when I got here. <laughs> and smoke damage to everything. Like, the building could have burned completely down, but my girlfriend at the time, who had just driven from Vancouver for five days, went into the house and put the fire out with a crock pot of water and probably saved all of southern downtown Nashville. I mean, the, the whole area was a tinderbox, man. And like, Anyway, that was the beginning of a very hard season where the work was getting really difficult, and all of a sudden my house is black, and every, you know, I had to deal with all that, and I wasn't really liking what I was working on, and I got kind of... At the time, I felt like I'd been kind of screwed over on a couple business deals. And, and I started thinking, is this really what I want? I mean, I know I want to make music. I know I want to make records. But do I want to make do it in Nashville? And, it, and this is before Nashville got cool, like, again. You know, this is 2004. And it was, it was rough. Like, people were leaving in droves. And so I called my parents up and said, hey, I think I need to come home for a while. And I was having some mild panic attacks and like it was just I think to some degree life catching up to somebody who had had not had a very realistic adolescence <laughs> and in hindsight it's the best thing that ever happened to me but it was it was it was devastating at the time it felt like a massive failure and I stayed in the band we made it another couple records but it was it was kind of the the end of, of my love affair with Nashville and making records in Nashville. Almost immediately after his love affair with Nashville had ended, a new love entered his life. And her name was Elise. The very first thing that happened when I moved back is I met, by a very strange set of circumstances, the woman who became my wife. And she is a trained sound engineer, trained at the best sound engineering school, recording school in the world, in London, she was just in Houston to go to a wedding and see her family for a little bit, and we met, and I asked her to stay for a bit and engineer a Cayman's record that I was finishing up at the time, which was Share the Well. And we started dating kind of uh, through the process of making that record. And, and two, the other thing that was happening at this point was I was realizing how much I truly had missed Houston. Like, when I started to think about how much comfort just driving around this town gave me that I never felt in Nashville, I realized that I, I was much more of a Houstonian than I had realized. And I was taking so much more joy in eating, you know, at Mama's Cafe and James Coney Island and, you know, like walking along the fecal brown waters of Buffalo Bayou and, and feeling completely at ease in a way that I just never had in, you know, a town that people say historically is, would say is more beautiful, that carried no water for me. So 
I have met and I'm falling in love with my wife and, and falling back in love with Houston at the same time. And I'm thinking, and, and when I'd first gotten here, I thought, well, I'll be here for a little bit and then I'm going to go to LA probably. And I, and there was a, you know, I even kind of figured out where I'd like to live there and, and all that stuff. But I really wanted to be here for a little bit longer and a little bit longer has turned into the last 10 years. So I bought a house on the west side of town, started putting together a new studio. I knew that the best thing for me was going to be to, to do most of my work in a home studio situation, but it was more of a, a studio home. It was like the, you know, the whole thing was... I had a bedroom, but it usually was functioning as a vocal booth most of the time. And, you know, Elise and I just made records there, and, and everything was going great for, for a while, for a, for a year. A year after Josh bought his house... He and Elise were in Dallas working on an album together, and someone broke into his house and stole everything. All of his gear, all of his hard drives, everything. Even the pillowcases off his pillows. He lost it all. Thankfully, the gear was covered by his insurance, but it took a little while for his claim to go through. To his surprise, while he waited, his career took an unexpected turn in a whole new direction. In the interim, my wife, who was teaching engineering at Houston Community College, had me come and give a guest lecture about mixing or something, and I meet a, uh, one of her students was an intern at a studio that I hadn't heard of yet that had just opened. It was called 7303, and it was over, I mean, it was almost in the shadow of the Astrodome. It's right over uh, off of 288. And he said, hey, man, just come come see the studio. Come meet the owner. You'll you'll love this place. It's really nice. It's, you know, it's one of the nice studios in Houston. I went over there, and it was. They put a lot of money into it, and... Um, famous studio designer I was aware of had, had built it. It was like one of the like almost Nashville-level studios in Houston. And I could tell that most of what was going on there was rap and R&B. And this is, two, this is 2006. And so I met the owner, and we talked for a little bit, and he said, man, I, I like you. I, you. You can come anytime, anytime you want. You, don't have, you just come and hang out. I was like, man, I appreciate that. You know, He's like, no, 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 you don't understand. You, you should just come and, and hang out. Well, okay, well, let me, I'll book something here. He's like, okay, great, but just come and hang out if you don't have something booked. And I didn't know what in the world he could have possibly meant. So I came a few days later, didn't have anything to do. I was like, okay, I'll go check it out. And I sit down, and I think it was, you know, a huge day room with, like, a pool table and multiple, like, living room, you know, big screen TV setups and video games and a kitchen, and there's tons of people in there. And I'm sitting there, I think, playing an Xbox or something, and somebody comes out and he says, hey, does anybody uh, play keyboards? I was like, well, yeah, I play keyboards. And I went in and was asked to play, just real quick, some keyboards over, like, an MPC beat, and it took about five minutes, and, and he gave me cash. And I went back out to the day room again, and I'm there for another 20, 30 minutes, and I overhear some guys across the way talking about uh, a hook they're trying to write. And I thought, oh, is this what he meant? Like, just come get involved? And so I went over to those guys. I like, say, you guys working on a hook? And they're like, yeah. It's like, you mind if I pitch in? I'm like, oh, yeah, man, it'd be great. Helped them craft a melody, went in, that got tracked on a ludicrous song. This is day one. And... Then two or three other things. I mean, it was absurd. And I walked out with cash and a check and had been a part of the making of like four or five pieces of music in one day with all different people. It was so vastly different than anything I'd ever seen in Nashville. It was total chaos, and it was working beautifully. That, of course, was the beginning of what became the southern dirty south rap explosion that the world is still experiencing the aftershocks of i mean this is this is right when pimp c got out of jail and you know you had everybody from chameleon air and slim thug and mike jones they were owning the rap charts out of houston and not since the ghetto boys had anything from houston touched national charts and i literally fell into it and because i with my experience in Nashville, had picked up a lot of different skills. I, within two weeks, knew everybody. I knew every everybody in the Houston and New Orleans rap scene. And 
started mixing most of the records that rap a lot put put out for the next few years i got to spend a lot of time with a guy named mike dean at his house who was sort of kanye's right hand mike is the godfather of the houston sound from a sonic perspective uh, anyway so that first six or seven months that's all i was doing i had gone st- pretty much straight from working on christian pop music to gangster rap and felt very comfortable with the transition because i just loved how different it was you know you didn't belabor the same song for multiple days or you didn't churn out at the time what these guys were doing was i mean incredible they were building on what dj screw had done was these new slower tempos you know now it is the backbone of pop music you i mean 90 percent of the rhythms you hear on the radio come directly from that scene the screw scene the serp scene all that it turns out that drum machines played at a somewhere between 60 and 80 bpm is a great bed for pop music and you know you you, by the time we get to jay-z's record magna carta where he's shouting out Houston more than New York and half the songs are you know in that rhythmic vernacular I mean it's pretty clear what the impact had been and it was a really amazing thing to be around but man in terms of artists from Houston having that kind of success it was super short it was I mean unless you count Beyonce like it's pretty much stopped stopped around I'd say 2010 but the impact of that time and all of those records were recorded at 73.3, almost without exception, for, for, certainly for a two-year window. Anyway, it was just a, an insane place at the same time. As I mentioned, I grew up as a huge fan of hip-hop and R&B, but DJ Screw and the sound he originated were gaining popularity in Houston while I was falling in love with folk music thanks to Cademan's Call and bands like them. So I wasn't terribly familiar with the Houston sound Josh mentioned. I've heard DJ Screw referenced in plenty of songs over the past decade and a half. But I had no idea the degree to which he influenced the rap and pop music world. In the mid-90s, there was a DJ in Houston named DJ Screw. And DJ Screw was known for playing these parties where a basically a version of codeine cough syrup was poured into a sweet Kool-Aid drink of some kind. And they called it lean or purple or syrup or you know any number of other things. And that music and the codeine, it slows you way down. And so what Screw did was he slowed the vinyl that he was playing down, sometimes to half speed. And it kind of just became this thing locally that was a uh, sound. He played, you know, regular hip-hop records slow, but that was Screw. And at night on Houston radio stations, they would play all Screw, and it was, you know... It's kind of it, it was it was a thing unto itself that didn't really occur anywhere else for years and years. But then fast forward, so, so DJ Screw died, and that sound kind of went away for a little bit. And then in 2005, 2006, um, a bunch of producers started programming drum machine beats in those same slow tempos but they were using what's called an 808 drum machine which is a very rudimentary simple early version of drum machine but i think when you hear it you'll notice what i'm talking about that it that it's sewn into the fabric of pop music now it's it's whereas late 90s to mid 2000s you know it's still real shiny pop Fat, you know, NSYNC and Backstreet Boys and everything's kind of, you know, got this frenetic, shiny thing going on. And then all of a sudden when these particular songs with slower tempos and this 808 drum sound, it didn't really matter what else was on top of it. The rappers also had this great southern drawl that made a lot more vowels rhyme than normally should if you're speaking the English language according to Oxford. But that... Such a great sound. So then, in the late 2000s, you started hearing other rappers pick up on it. And the first sign that something was seriously happening to me was Drake, because Drake pretty much overnight became the biggest star on planet Earth. And you hear him rap, it sounds like he's from Acres Homes, a 
neighborhood in North Houston. He sounds very much like Pimp C, a famous Houston rapper. He's from Toronto. Like, you cannot possibly be less credible sounding like that if you tried. And yet, it was such a powerful sound. It worked so well for pop music. Nobody questioned the way this dude was, was rapping and singing because it worked. And to me, it's just, it, 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 you know, that's the best example I know of to, like, there is no such thing as true credibility and artistic credibility. That's stupid. Don't have that argument. Let's have an argument about the value of an artist based on the impact that just their creation has on people and whether or not they're qualified to make it. I have little patience for that side of that debate. And I think that, that it's been really cool to see how those kinds of sounds and the way that they're produced shows up in everything from Lord, Lord's Royals, that's a Houston track. I mean, like I said, all those Jay-Z songs, Justin Timberlake's uh, first three singles off of his last major record, those could all be Houston songs. And, and I mean, Beyonce. I mean, everything from, I mean, all of the singles on Lemonade, she, it's almost like she was avoiding it like the plague through Destiny's Child and the first several records. She sounded like, you know, whatever the L.A. Reed pop thing, uh, West Coast thing was. And all of a sudden, uh, right around the time she got with Jay-Z, you started to hear more of the draw come out and the beats got a little, you know, it's a little darker and, and, and slower and just had a little bit more of a of a street edge to it, you know, and that, and that resonated with people all over the world, still is resonating. Arguably one of the most influential rap acts to ever come out of the Houston hip-hop scene was UGK, the Underground Kings. UGK was made up of Bernard Freeman, known as Bun B, and Chad Butler, known as Pimp C. The duo was active throughout the 90s and early 2000s until Butler wound up spending a few years in prison for a probation violation. When he was released in late 2005... Josh was there to record his first rap since being locked up at 7303. It was a great season for the Houston rap scene, and Josh was at the center of it, right up until everything began to change. I was with a producer named Big Time, Randy Big Time Jefferson, who produced the first, what I would say is kind of certifiably the first major Houston rap number one. It was called Still Tippin'. And Randy and I worked together for about a year on on beats before I started doing more of the mix side of stuff and he was over at my house and sitting next to me on the couch he's like man I don't know what this means man but I got a bad feeling about Chad that was his pimp's real name like pimp C like what's up I don't know man I just got a bad feeling and his phone rang not two minutes later he found out that pimp C had been found dead in his hotel room in Los Angeles and I'd say to some degree that was, if not the end, the beginning of the end of, of the magic of that time. Everyone was so... I mean, the guy had been out of prison for like less than two years. And, and he was one of the most beloved figures of that scene. And he was gone and way too soon, you know. UGK for life will make sure that, you know, if you were alive when Pimp C was, you, you, you will... You know, and, and you're a southern rapper. You know his place, and like, but they're the underground kings. I mean, I'm still amazed how many people who know all these other, you know, the names, you know, Drake and, and Wiz Khalifa, and Kendrick Lamar. They don't know who Pimp C is, and and every one of them would say that Pimp C is one of their greatest influences. Every major rapper today would say that. I mean, Drake has said he would. You wouldn't have any idea who he was if it weren't for Pimp C. As the landscape of the Houston rap scene began to change, so did life for Josh and Elise. The next few years after all that kind of are, are centered around starting a family with my wife. We got pregnant in 2009. I made a couple records right in there that I was really proud of with Derek Webb, and um, my wife and I toured with him. And at, right at the end of one of those tours, we had our first son, and that was effectively the end of my touring like even even by that point, I wasn't touring a lot, but I kind of completely stopped after that. And the studio home thing didn't really work anymore. So I, you know, had a studio bedroom, 
and then we moved from that house to another house where I had it in like a little garage apartment thing and, and did that for several years, probably three or four years. And just still making records, but stop, stopped being so exclusively uh, rap and worked with bands and solo singer-songwriter uh, types and uh, also started getting a lot more interested in, in video around that time, more from a, a academic side, trying to learn a lot about it, not doing a whole lot of it yet. But also, I was still having to travel a lot to make records. I, st- I still had to go to L.A. or Nashville or New York a, a fair amount to make cool records. And once we had our second son, that was much more difficult. And I decided that it was it made sense to follow in my father's footsteps at that point and start leading worship at a church. And I started doing that at the church that we were going to. It was called Ecclesia. And they had a, a need for a music guy. And so I just kind of said I would do that sort of for a little bit while they found someone else, but really enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. Put together a great band and, and had a really great program where we kind of mixed a lot of styles that kind of rendered sort of a new sound, I felt like, for what was going on in the church. And then a couple of years ago, moved the studio out of my house into a place in the Heights, it was the Heights Pharmacy, going back to like the 30s. And it was a cool building, old building, but it was not high enough. It flooded twice, even when hardly any other parts of the Heights flooded uh, in 2016. The pharmacy got hit twice with multiple inches of water. And we didn't lose a whole lot of gear. I mean, we did. We lost some, but we lost some furniture. And, and it was just clear that that was not a good scene. Right after the first flood, the day after, in fact, I met a guy named Frank who's part of a very successful development family that, you know, does a lot of large-scale development. And he's also a musician and an incredible guitar player, and he, he came to the studio while it was, you know, still wet. And he said, man, you, you know, I've heard a lot about you, and it looks like you got a pretty legit operation here, but it's clear you need another place to work. <laughs> And so we went and looked at some of the older buildings that, you know, his company had acquired and was going to be doing some remodeling and adaptive reuse development on. And one of them was the old post office downtown. Gigantic compound, 600,000 square feet, mid-century temple to federal efficiency. But the USPS had gotten out and sold it to this private developer. So it was just a big empty building. But... We're looking around, it's like warehouses and stuff, but I was looking around and, I, and he shows me a bomb shelter. And it actually has like the radioactive fallout sign above the door. And it goes downstairs, down below the floor, which for anyone that's ever lived in Houston, you know there are no basements in this town. There's not like uh, in my entire life I've been underground like three times. And at first I was thinking, well, that's probably the worst place, even though it looks super cool and has a cool story. It's probably the worst place to put a studio if I'm concerned about flooding. But it had a sump that would pump water out. So even if the whole rest of the building was flooded, this room would be dry. So I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. But it had been a mechanical area and really neglected. And it looked like a, it looked like what I imagine a scene from one of the Saw movies looks like, even though I've not seen any of those movies. <laughs> it, it seems to me this would be a perfect place to shoot a Saw film. But I thought, hey, you know what? We're resilient. We'll power wash the walls and we'll put up some baffles and we'll make it an a interesting place to have a studio. It'll be well insulated from the sound and everything. Well, I was incredibly naive about how much work it would take. And it, we were almost one year from when we started, and we're still not really done. But what we have accomplished, I'm really proud of, and it, it as a as a creative kind of headspace, I'm hard pressed to think of anything else in town that's this conducive to that kind of headspace. Over the last several months, I've spent a fair amount of time in his studio, Castle Bravo, and he's right. It's unlike any recording space I've seen in Houston or anywhere else. That's something that I love about this room is that it feels very Houstonian. It feels like it's kind of 
already kind of in the swamp in, in a very real way. It's tough. It's kind of dirty, but it's charming. And, and where the studio is keeps me in touch with an important part of Houston history. It's right where the Buffalo Bayou meets White Oak Bayou, which is, which is known to be the birthplace of Houston, uh, where the Allen brothers, who I suppose were just the first white guys to put their stamp on something, is right across the street. Allen's Landing is right over there. And, and we're right at the mouth of, uh, right at the entrance point to downtown Houston. And it's easy to see how people who are not from here can come to Houston and have a bone to pick about either the weather or the amount of concrete or the mosquitoes. But short of those three things, I put it at near or at the top of the list of interesting and vibrant and culturally relevant cities globally, period. It is the it is now officially the most diverse city in the United States. It has more Fortune 500 company headquarters than any other city in the world besides New York. It is, uh, as they say, a big deal. It gets overlooked for some of its cultural aspects because people who are not from here that try to quantify what that is, what a cultural presence is, they come to Houston, they can't possibly understand it because it's so spread out. You have so many different types of culture. There's no condensed particular thing. I mean, just the combination of Chinatown, Koreatown, and Vietnamtown down on the southwest side has to be over 2 million people. It alone has to be one of the largest cities in America. And every five blocks, you have a concentration of unbelievable culture that is, you know, it's a 10-minute drive. It's not, you know, but but everything is kind of spread out. But I think the biggest problem Houston has is that people think Houston has a problem. And as soon as we stop talking about, well, how is Houston going to get recognized? Like, I feel like it's kind of one of the things I've been talking about. Like, whether or not people know it, it just happened. A, a, a bomb of music that was built in Houston just went off on the entire planet. And we show no signs to me of, of not continuing to, to push cultural expression but we just do it in a different way we do we do it in a way that is so le- so much less hypey than los angeles nashville new york and i mean put the food of this town up against any city in the world including paris like it is beyond absurd how much, many great places there there is to eat food and so many other things but for me that's all prelude to what the is the number one best thing about this town and it's the people i don't know if being so like climatologically miserable has caused people to develop like a a sort of sense of a heightened sense of camaraderie and community and and just politeness to strangers that you will not find anywhere else i mean i've i've traveled this country extensively and I've been around the world a few times I have not been in a place that feels this warm that isn't like a town of 500 people it's it's disarming to friends of mine from the northeast or or from the west coast like I can't I can't deal with all these people being so nice to me like people saying hi if you are walking across a parking lot in Houston and there's no one else around there's a good likelihood that you will the person will say hi to you in some muted way, but they're going to connect with you. That's in the that's in the ground here. It's in the water. It's how we we do things, and that that to me is the reason why I have a really hard time imagining living anywhere else. I am a in the blood Houstonian. Everything about this town I think is perfect. I mean, I even feel like at times I'm I'm amphibious. Like I go to other cities that have, you know, what others consider beautiful dry air, and it's just really uncomfortable for me. So I have so many great memories of of being a child in Houston in the 80s, whether it was, you know, Astroworld, the Astrodome, or Herman Park, and and, uh, some of the stuff's gone now, but it's cool to to be a parent now and, and get to kind of see what the next generation of childhood in Houston is like for my kids. Josh's love for this city is evident. If nothing else, 
in that despite the fact that he could easily have a thriving career in any of the three mainstream music cities, Nashville, New York, and L.A., he chooses to remain here in Houston, to raise his family here, and to pour his talents into Houston's diverse music scene. You still love music in the same way? I love it in a different way. I love making it in a different way than I did when I started, and I like enjoying it in a different way. This is a really abstract thing to say, but to me it was all, all about make the music so that you can buy the gear to make the music, to buy the gear to make the music. That was, that was going to be my economic model for my entire life. And I was just going to, hopefully at the end of my ability to make music, have enough gear to, you know, sell that and, and you know, keep breathing for another decade. But like that was it. I, I didn't want anything else than to just be able to keep bouncing the cassettes, you know, like just get that feeling. And it comes like all the time, working with other creatives that are sure of their thing and me coming in and being like, hey, what if we do, like, it's that, that thing that's actually a lot easier for me, but making stuff, especially for friends, that's what, and building friendships in the process of making stuff, it's like, it's as good as it gets. Josh Moore makes me love this city more every time I hear him talk about it. It's a truly incredible place, and Josh is part of the reason for that. To keep up with his various creative endeavors, check out joshmoore.me and follow him on Instagram at joshthemore. You'll find links in the show notes for this episode. Well, that does it for episode eight of The H. Huge thanks to Josh Moore, Cliff Young, Randy Holzapple, and Matt at Sigma Brewing for making this episode great. As always, huge thanks to you guys for listening, subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show in iTunes. We'll be back in two weeks with episode nine. This episode of The H was produced, edited, and scored by me, Luke Bronner. Our artwork is by the fine folks at Spindletop Design in the Heights, and our theme song is by the Robbie C. Band. Other songs featured in this episode are by Houston-raised piano prodigy Cameron Pissera and local instrumental artist Broar. This and every episode of The H is brought to you in part by Pink Cilantro, a social-first digital agency focused on marketing, branding, and all sorts of other great stuff. Check them out at pinkcilantro.com. Now here's a scene from episode 9, Lo-Fi Prowling. All my years growing up in Southern California, you know, I fell in love with punk rock music and that whole do-it-yourself ethos. And I kind of find that within going to a farmer's market and buying the vegetables from the guy who grew them, you know, and being able to bring them back and, and create things with them. So that kind of has been a big part of my story, especially in Houston. As long as I've been here, you know, I've tried to be a part of that community of people. And then just being a chef, you know, in Houston, working at all kinds of different restaurants and with all, you know, a lot of really, really amazing people. I mean, the the food scene in Houston is is really diverse and really tight, you know, and everybody seems to know everybody else and be really supportive of it. And, you know, that's why when I moved here in 99, like, you know, I just completely fell in love with this city. (laughs) 